I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, the Adriatic coastline of Italy is a place of beauty. It's a place of history. It's a place of great food and even better wine. It is a paradise in many ways. Yet, in 1943, it was a place of death, destruction, and chaos. A multinational allied force including Poles, New Zealanders, Australians, Indians, Americans, English, Irish, Scottish, Welsh, and Canadians... We're all working together to advance over terrain that heavily favored the defending Germans. And this meant that every field, yard, square, and town captured would exact a bloody toll on the Allied soldiers. On the East Coast, a small town became the focus of one of the more important actions during the fight to clear the German winter line in late 1943. And it was Canadians of the 1st Canadian Infantry Division, who were given this all-important task to shatter the eastern defenses of the Winter Line in order to support the Allies' western push towards Rome. This is Season 5, Episode 8, Little Stalingrad, The Fight for Ortona. The book recommendation this week is the incredibly entertaining and thrilling book by acclaimed Canadian historical writer Mark Zelke, titled Ortona, Canada's Epic World War II Battle, published in 1999 by Douglas and McIntyre. This is an exceptionally readable and well-researched account of the fight for Ortona that really brings home the incredible difficulties and violence which characterized the fighting by 1st Division in December of 1943. Okay, you see, the ultimate objective was Rome. That's probably no surprise to our listeners, nor was it much of a surprise to the Allied and German soldiers facing each other in the winter of 1943. General Harold Alexander was the man in charge of 15th Army Group, the combined military forces that were fighting their way up the Italian mainland. 
Alexander and 15th Army Group were in Italy in order to force the Germans to pull soldiers away from the Eastern Front in order to help the Soviets, while also forcing the Germans to pull troops away from Northwest Europe in order to weaken the Atlantic Wall and facilitate an easier invasion of Northwest Europe. This would be obviously Operation Overlord, which was to come in June 1944. Thus, Alexander's 15th Army Group pressed the Germans all the way up the Italian boot to the Winter Line. The Winter Line was a series of complex and well-built defensive lines connecting all the way from the west coast of Italy over the Apennine Mountains to the east coast of Italy. In order for Alexander to get Rome, the Winter Line had to be breached. There were several keys to breaching the Winter Line. In the west, the Leary Valley and the heights of Monte Cassino had to be captured and controlled for Mark Clark's U.S. 5th Army to advance. In the east, the control of the key coastal highway running through the town of Ortona and ending in Pescara was vital to success. To get to Ortona, the daunting Sangro River would have to be crossed. If the Sangro could be secured, then the highway could be captured, finally leading to the fall of Ortona, Pescara, and thus collapsing the eastern defenses of the Winter Line. Alexander's plan was a good one, if the weather held, and if his forces could move rapidly. In the east, Bernard Montgomery's British 8th Army would crack the Winter Line and capture the vital town of Pescara, from which they could now control the east-west highway running directly west to Rome. At the same time, Mark Clark's American 5th Army would punch through the Winter Line in the west, smash through the Leary Valley, and advance directly onto Rome. The combination of these two armies descending on the Eternal City would, Alexander hoped, force the Germans to abandon it and fall back farther north. The plan relied on speed and cooperation from the weather gods. Bernard Montgomery's 8th Army received no cooperation from the weather gods, however, when he launched his operation in late November 1943. The rain poured down endlessly, and roads became near impassable with mud and rising rivers uncrossable. The Germans were well dug in, and progress was slow with casualties mounting. Charles Alfrey's Fifth Corps was the formation engaged in securing the coastal highway through Ortona, but his 78th New Zealand Division, spearheading the assault, was suffering heavily as November turned to December. Thus the decision was made in early December. The 78th was pulled out of the line, and in its place was put the fresh 1st Canadian Infantry Division. The Canadians were now leading the way for 5th Corps. The Canadian attack on the town of Ortona was actually the final phase in a three-phase advance along the Adriatic coast. Under Divisional Commander Chris Vokes, 1st Canadian Infantry Division established a bridgehead over the Moro River and then found themselves in a brutal fight for a steep ravine that was heavily defended and nearly impassable to Allied tanks. 
The constant overcast weather that typified winter on the East Coast meant that the Canadians' greatest advantage, their use of tactical air support, was severely restricted. It was going to be a frontal assault that captured this important piece of terrain, the gully, as the Canadians called it. It would be some of the worst fighting for any Canadians in the entire war, and by the time the gully was cleared on the 14th of December, 1st Canadian Infantry Division was dealing with growing numbers of casualties. Yet, with the capture of the gully, the road to Ortona was finally open. But Ortona itself would be closed off, because defending this ancient town were the elite soldiers of the 1st Parachute Division. The decision by Chris Vokes to go forward and capture Ortona has been a controversial one. Spending time fighting within built-up areas like Ortona would significantly slow down the general advance of 5th Corps. Remember, speed is vital. An alternative could have been to bypass the town completely, capture the surrounding countryside, and force the Germans in Ortona to surrender or withdraw. More dramatically, Vokes could completely mask the town, trapping the Germans in it for the remainder of the war. To Vokes's credit, he did indeed send two Canadian brigades, 1st and 3rd, to outflank the Germans to the west of Ortona. Yet it remains a peculiar decision why he also sent 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade to become so bogged down in brutal street fighting for the town itself. Perhaps part of the pressure was the media attention that was suddenly cast on the actions along the Adriatic coast. Here, for instance, is CBC war correspondent Matthew Halton. We're in this gully now. You can hear the engineers shouting in this gully just below Ortona, where Western Canadian uh, units are having one of the toughest fights of the campaign. Down in the gully, which is sometimes under enemy fire, there are more than a hundred Canadians ignoring whatever fire there is and doing this job so that the battle can get on. So that the battle can get on. With me just now, there is Captain uh, Lieutenant Donald McClellan of Vancouver, who is in charge of the building of this bridge. Halton goes on to interview one of the officers helping to construct a bridge over the gully. Uh, You're working here at times in plain view of the enemy, aren't you, Lieutenant? Uh, Yeah, yes, he can see us right from Ortona. Has he shelled you much? Not very quickly, but some have fallen uh, rather near to us. We've been driven off the job. Oh, yes. Well, I hope they don't start shelling just for a few minutes. I hope they... Our own brand guns and the enemy schmizers and, and uh, spandaus scuttling away in our turner. Who is this, uh... Oh, who is this older savage? Not only were CBC war correspondents following First Division, but Allied newspapers throughout the world were now speaking of the attempt to crack through the eastern end of the German winter line. Could Vokes have felt pressure to secure a complete victory instead of leaving the town relatively unmolested? 
as well. Up until this point, there had been no instance whereby the Germans had sought to tenaciously hold onto any urban space. German activity so far had been to conduct a brief but stiff defensive action, followed by a complete withdrawal to another defended position further back. A fighting retreat up the peninsula, basically. For Vokes and the men of 1st Canadian Infantry Division, it's certainly understandable that they thought this is exactly the type of action they would encounter. They were wrong. Folks, I want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time or on a monthly basis, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations per show. So if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page and on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy, and thank you to all who have donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Ortona is an ancient place. It is said that it was founded by refugees from Troy, seeking safe harbor after the disastrous Trojan War. The town itself is divided by the old town, making up the northern half of it, and the new town, making up the southern half. Two towers dominate the town, one at the far northern end, part of a 15th century fortress perched on the top of a cliff, and the second being the Tower of St. Thomas Cathedral within the old town itself. The key positions in Ortona were three large open piazzas, or squares. The Canadians would need to capture all three to ensure full control. In order from south to north, the squares were Piazza della Vittorio in the southern, newer portion of the town, followed by Piazza Municipale at the junction between the new town and old town, and finally, Piazza San Tommaso in the old town itself. The Germans had prepared Ortona to receive the Canadians. They had destroyed buildings, choking off narrow lanes with massive rubble piles. Within these piles, they had machine guns, snipers, mines, and booby traps. Only a few streets were left unblocked, and these channeled the Canadians into pre-measured killing zones. Anywhere and everywhere a Canadian walked, it was likely already prepared by the Germans. The narrow streets meant that the use of tanks would be limited. The closeness of the buildings, coupled with the bad weather, meant air support would be almost non-existent. Even the effect of artillery and mortar support was limited, due to the immense amounts of destruction which had created urban cover for the German defenders. As one Canadian officer from the Loyal Edmonton Regiment wrote, the Jerry defenses were very good and obviously well-planned. Machine guns were always mutually supporting, and they even had tanks hauled down and bombed out houses. 
Defended buildings were barricaded with sandbags and all kinds of household goods. The windows were screened with chicken wire to keep out grenades. They set up some first-class booby traps. You might see a nice Bible or piece of stained glass lying about a house. Items like these were usually connected to at least a pound of explosives. End quote. Simply put, Ortona was a defender's dream and an attacker's nightmare. On the 20th of December, 1943, the attack began. By the next day, advanced troops of the Seaforth Highlanders and the Loyal Edmonton Regiment, supported by tanks from the Three Rivers Regiment, had entered the outskirts of the town. Fighting was intense and incessant. Hand-to-hand fighting was common as Canadians and Germans fought for every room, in every house, on every block. Because of the narrow streets, the tanks were limited in their mobility, and thus it was more often than not the simple courage and tenacity of individual Canadian soldiers that made the difference between capturing an enemy position or being pushed back. In the opening phase, the attack saw both battalions capture Piazza Vittorio and from there launch themselves northwards through the narrow streets. The Seaforths moved up the western portion of the town while the Loyalettis moved up the eastern side. It is here that the battle finally earned its name Little Stalingrad, a reference to the large and violent urban battle between Germans and Soviets at the symbolic city of Stalingrad in the Soviet Union. Like in that Soviet city, every single house and block in Ortona was captured through violence. The Germans would allow the Canadians to advance into these preset killing zones, often at the opened end of a long street. And when the last soldier entered the zone, German snipers and machine gun fire would rip into the Canadian men. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. By the end of the second day, Canadian tanks were providing cover along the narrow streets with Canadian soldiers hugging the walls of individual houses, afraid to expose themselves to the withering and accurate German rifle and machine gun fire. With the narrow streets covered so well by the Germans, the Canadians began paying dearly for every single block. A new tactic was needed. If the streets were killing zones then the Canadians were going to have to stop using the streets. Instead, they would use the houses lining the streets. You see, most of the blocks consisted of rows of houses that were sharing walls. The Canadians implemented a method whereby they would clear one house, then place a shape charge against the upstairs wall. These were known as beehive charges. The beehive charge would explode, sending debris and shrapnel into the adjoining upstairs room of the next house. Grenades were then thrown into this newly created mouse hole, followed by a rush of Canadian soldiers. As one soldier put it, We preferred to clear the houses from the upstairs down. If we couldn't get through the windows, we mouse holed. 
The beehive charges we used would kill any Germans in the adjacent rooms, and we followed right through immediately. Our 36 grenades could be dropped downstairs before we carried on to clear the lower rooms. This was a basic difference between our approach and the Jerry tactics. When they came into a house, it was on the ground floor. Trying to return the favor of our grenades was disastrous for them. Their old potato mashers would rattle back down the stairs and explode at their feet. End quote. By implementing this mouse-holing technique, the Canadians began to steadily advance, but resistance continued to be stiff. By Christmas Day, the Canadians occupied about three-quarters of the town, but fierce fighting continued. Only two blocks from the front line, Canadians began sitting down to enjoy a Christmas meal, sing a few carols, have a couple beers and cigars, and eat a warm meal. Meanwhile, those unlucky enough to have to remain at the front ate cold pork and washed it down with stale water. While some of the hot Christmas meal was brought forward, it must have been a surreal scene overall. Not 100 yards from a place of immense violence and death, soldiers were celebrating the birth of a god of peace. Most soldiers were allowed to rotate back to the Christmas dinner for about 30 minutes or so to eat and drink before once again being hustled back to the front line. Here is Corporal Harry Rankin of the Seaforth Highlanders talking about this kind of unusual scene. It was a different kind of fighting at Artona. I think it was a pretty savage period of fighting, fairly prolonged, and uh, I don't know just the exact sequences. It was one of those rather uh, odd times. It was Christmas uh, when people think of something else rather than war, and uh, we did get a Christmas dinner out of that particular battle, uh, moving units out of the line periodically for their dinner and a bottle of beer or some wine and back into the line again. Uh, that's a bit of a contradiction, you know, uh, peace, goodwill, and all that sort of thing, but it's one of the contradictions that war sometimes produces. By the 26th of December, the Loyal Eddies had cleared the final key piazza at San Tommaso, while the Seaforths had effectively captured most of the western part of the town. Yet even more violence was to ensue, because the Germans had mined a series of houses in the final portion of the town, and as the Canadians entered them, the Germans blew the charges, and entire houses were collapsed on top of unsuspecting Canadian soldiers. When a party approached to try and dig them out, they were subject to mortar and grenade fire. As well, in every house that was cleared by Canadians, the Germans had planted booby traps. Thus, even sections of the town that were finally cleared remained dangerous for all Canadian soldiers. Here is Bert Hoffmeister, commander of 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade, talking about the Canadian reaction to the Germans' mining houses. When the, uh, an, an entire platoon of the Edmonton Regiment uh, was wiped out by the Germans blowing a house in on top of them, the Germans having... Uh, prior to the uh, detonation being occupying the room next door or the house next door, I talked with the uh, commander of sappers in an effort to uh, develop some weapon that we could use. And of course, our engineers being what they were, they quickly came up with uh, a charge of Amatol 
which we were able to put into four-gallon, old four-gallon petrol cans. And from that time on, we did our share of blowing in uh, houses on the Germans. And uh, this uh, was uh, indeed an equalizer. While the loyal Eddies and Seaforths were clearing the city, the rest of 1st Division had actually been slowly encircling the town. The Germans, still holding out in the northern portion of Ortona, around the castle, realized they were at risk of being entirely cut off. Thus, on the 28th of December, the last of the German defenders retreated. Ortona was finally cleared. As Matthew Halton wrote, We went, high-strung as cats, through mines and dead men and appalling ruin. We heard laughter and turned and saw some Canadian soldiers talking in a basement to some Italian girls. Laughter and girls in Ortona. I saw a Canadian lying in a marksman position on a pile of rubble. It was five seconds before I realized he was dead. He was still aiming his rifle. A lock of hair hung freely down his neck. It was moving back and forth in the brisk, cold wind. The Germans were superb, I admit it freely, and when that is said, our Canadians were better. The Bosch had all the cards, the prepared positions, the hundreds of booby traps and mines. We had to seek him out and kill him man to man, and so, on these fearful notes, the battle ends. Ortona fell to the Canadians, but the going was too slow. While 8th Army was able to eventually achieve its objectives, it would not be able to use the east-west highway from Pescara to threaten the Germans at Rome. A new offensive would need to be planned to crack the winter line on the western side of the peninsula in the Leary Valley. In the eight days of action in Ortona, the loyal Edmonton Regiment suffered 172 casualties, with the Seaforth Highlanders suffering 103. Since the push from the Moro River, 1st Division had lost nearly 3,800 men. Vokes was nicknamed the Butcher by men of the 1st Division after the Battle of Ortona, though this may be a rather unfair nickname. A former staff officer at 1st Division tells a story of a night in late December when he discovered Vokes having dinner all by himself in his own headquarters and Vokes was crying. As the staff officer recalled, there was only one reason he was weeping. He realized what his men were going through. Well, listeners, this will be our last episode before the holiday season. In fact, it will be our last episode of 2019. 2019 has been an incredible one for us here at Cool Canadian History, and we hope this podcast has brought some listening joy and some new knowledge to you, our listeners. We shall return January 6th, 2020, with the next episode. So I want to wish all our listeners a happy holidays, a joyous Saturnalia, and a wonderful start to the new year of 2020. Salut. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. 
And you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in and stay cool.